This morning, I'd like to speak to you from the 48th chapter in the book of Genesis. Uh, for the last uh, three or four months, we've been meeting, uh, as a rule, every other Wednesday night. We've been taking a look at the life of Joseph, uh, as is recorded in Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis 50. Uh, in other words, the last 14 chapters of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is primarily about the life of Joseph. But also the life of Jacob is presented to us uh, a great deal in these chapters. And here in Genesis chapter 48, and this is going to be, I guess, uh, our Wednesday night uh, uh, lesson on the life of Joseph, is going to deal primarily in the beginning with Jacob. Now, as you get to chapter 48, you're going to find that Jacob is 147 years of age. Joseph is about 56. You'll find where Jacob has been in Egypt for the last 17 years of his life. The first 17 years that Joseph lived, and that's how old he was when he comes to our attention in Genesis 37, the first 17 years of the life of Joseph, his father Jacob took care of him. The last 17 years of the life of Jacob, Joseph, his son, took care of him. And that's the way it's supposed to work. We bring children in this world and we take care of them. We feed them, we clothe them, we educate them, we teach them, do the very best we can to guide them and point them in the right direction. They get grown, they start their own families. Mothers and fathers get older. Mothers and fathers sometimes reach an age where those children that the parents took care of when they brought them into this world, when they couldn't take care of themselves, it reaches a point where the parents may not be able to take care of themselves. When that time comes, the children are to step forward, step up to the plate, and take care of their fathers, their parents. Notice again, the first 17 years of Joseph's life, we find Jacob taking care of him. But then Joseph is sold down to Egyptian bondage and slavery. His brothers envied him and hated him and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites took him down into Egypt, sold him to a man by the name of Potiphar. He stayed in that household for a while as a servant. He then was lied upon, and we find where he spent some time in prison. But God in his providence and his power delivered him from prison and established him as second in command in the land of Egypt. He had the title of governor. Joseph given the wisdom that God gave him, took care of seven years of plenty, and then managed the seven years of plenty where they can get through the seven years of famine. During this time, Jacob and the rest of his brothers are still back in the land of Canaan. Jacob's brothers and Jacob himself at this point believe that Joseph is dead. And Jacob does not believe he'll ever see him again. But through the miraculous workings of God, we find where Jacob is brought down to the land of Egypt. He's 130 years of age at this time. He's going to spend the last 17 years of his life in Egypt. And we're going to find that when Jacob fed Joseph the first 17 years of his life, Joseph is going to feed Jacob the last 17 years of his life. Now, as we look into chapter 48, I want to back up and look at the last couple of verses in chapter 47. Chapter 48 begins with the word and. That's a connecting word. See, when the Bible was first written by divine inspiration, it was not broken down into chapters and verses. 
And most of the chapters in the Bible begin with the word and. Some begin with the word now, some with the word then. It just seemed like it was a good place uh, when they established chapters and verses to start a new chapter. And oftentimes it starts a new thought or a new subject perhaps, but sometimes not so. And so when you start a chapter, sometimes the context of that chapter begins in the previous chapter and it's just continuing on into the chapter that you're in. So you need to always remember that when you're reading study in your Bible. Now chapter 48 begins with Jacob being sick. Well, let's notice how chapter 48 ends. Excuse me, 47 ends. Chapter 47 and verse 29. And the time drew nigh that Israel, that's Jacob, must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. Now Jacob been in Egypt for 17 years. He enjoyed the fellowship of Joseph. He enjoyed the fellowship of his family. They had a special area, geographical area, called the land of Goshen that they lived in. They were separated from the Egyptians from that point of view. But Jacob knew that he didn't belong in Egypt. I hope you know you don't belong in Egypt, and I don't belong in Egypt. And so when he died, it was important for him to get Joseph to swear unto him that he would not bury him in Egypt, that he would take him out of Egypt and take him back to the land of Canaan. Joseph assures him of this. He said, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he said, I will do as thou has said. You know, I made a practice always doing what my dad told me. Well, I'm growing up, maybe not 100%. But anyway, after I got to be an adult, after I got married and had the family of my own, uh, when dad would want me to do something, even though I didn't think it made a whole lot of sense, maybe, or I thought it might be a better way, you, you know what I did? I just did what he told me. <laughs> I just showed my respect to him and did what he told me to do. We find Joseph here says, I'll do it. I'll do it. Joseph's 56, his father's 147. Joseph says, I'll do it. And he says, swear unto me. And he's swearing to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Now I want you to look at this uh, picture. Try to visualize if you can. The word bowed here literally means to do humble service to. It means to worship. It means to beseech humbly. This is just not a picture of a man that's gotten very weak and very sick. Yes, he was weak in body. And as a result of that, after talking to Joseph, he relaxed back perhaps there. But that word bowed indicates more than that. It means he entered into a place of worship between him and God. Now let's see how chapter 48 starts out. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now these two sons will play a very important part here in this chapter. These two sons were born unto Joseph when he was 30 years of age. You go back and find when uh, Joseph, uh, just before the years of uh, famine, uh, excuse me, the years of plenty began, to be followed by the years of famine, uh, he was given a wife there by Pharaoh, and he had these two sons. And he named these two sons based upon his experiences. The first one, the, the uh, older one, Manasseh, he said, God hath made me forget all my toil and labor. Now, Joseph 
being just like you and I, with a human nature like you and I, could have become very bitter. He'd been mistreated by his family. I mean, in a way that was unbelievable just about. He was mistreated by his family. He was sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites and taken down the land of Egypt. He lived a life of a servant, resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife to the point where she lied upon him and lied to her husband. And then he was put in prison, even though he hadn't done anything wrong. And then there came a time after he was in prison for a while that the baker and the butler had a dream. And the baker and the butler, the dream was interpreted by Joseph. It came to pass just exactly like Joseph said. And the butler was restored to his position, but the baker uh, lost his life. But the Lord told the butler, he says, when you get out of here, speak up for me. I don't belong down here. Remember me. The Bible says the butler forgot him. I mean, Joseph had a lot of tough times. Joseph had a lot of experiences that would have made a lot of people very bitter. But experiences make you bitter or they make you better. And they made Joseph better. Joseph, God hath made me. Now, you're going to need some help in these situations. You're going to need some help to make you forget, right? God hath made me forget all my toil and all my trials and tribulations in this land. That took the grace of God to do that, but God gave the power to Joseph to do it. Then he had another son, the name of Ephraim. And he named him Ephraim, which means God hath made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, when he had that son, Joseph, now is out of prison. Joseph is second in command. Joseph is the governor in the land of Egypt. But he didn't take credit for that. He didn't look around like Nebuchadnezzar did. What, you remember what Nebuchadnezzar did when he went out one day, looked at his kingdom and said, oh, look at this great kingdom that I have established that I have you know, made by my own hand. He didn't do that. He said, God hath made me fruitful. It's by God's power and God's pro uh, uh, providence that I was delivered out of prison that I'm now second in command here to Pharaoh. I'm the governor of the land. He named those two sons after his experiences and gave God the glory in both of those names for his situation at that current time. So we find here when Joseph receives word that his father is sick, he goes to see his sick father and takes with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee, and Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. It's amazing how good news sometimes can energize you. It's amazing uh, uh, how you can just be uh, frail and weak and, and just don't think you put one foot in front of another. And somebody says, uh, uh, you know, your son and his family are coming. Well, the next thing you know, you, you puts a spring in your step, right? It energizes you. I mean, some good news can energize you. And you find where the Bible says in the last part of Genesis 47, that time had come that Israel must die. He's frail. He's weak. He's sick. The report goes to Joseph that he's sick. Joseph and his sons come. When Jacob hears that, when someone says Joseph and his sons, which is Jacob's grandsons, are here, the Bible says that Jacob was strengthened. Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. This is the scene that we're about to see in a little bit that Paul mentions in Hebrews in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 21, where he says, By faith, when Jacob was a dying, D-Y-I-N-G, he's not dead yet, but he's close to it. When Jacob was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon his staff. This is what he's talking about right here. He bowed himself upon the bed. He now strengthens himself. 
and set up upon the bed. And according to Paul, he leans upon his staff. That's a picture of worship. How important worship is. You come to the 95th division of the Psalms. And the psalmist says in verse 6, he says, Oh, come, let us worship. Let us bow and worship God. It says, For we are the people of his pasture and the sheep uh, of, of his hand. That's why we're to worship. We're his people. We should worship him. He's our God and he's our Father. And we are the people of his pasture with the sheep in his hand. And we should have the desire and we should always make, uh, you know, sure that we are found in the house of God on the day when the Lord's house is meeting to worship him. Now, there's a lot of different views and scenes of worship in the Bible. When I, you might normally think about worship, you might think about a congregational setting such as this. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're here to worship God. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to honor men. We're here to honor God. We're here to praise God. We're here to give him the praise and the glory and the honor for all that he's done for us. That's what worship is all about. But I want to give you just a few little things that go along with that. In the book of Psalms, Psalms 34 and verse 18, it says, The Lord is nigh them of a contrite spirit, and he shall revive the heart of the contrite ones. Who is God near to? Those of a contrite spirit. The word contrite means sensible. It means knowledgeable. It means you have an awareness of. What are you knowledgeable about? You're knowledgeable that you're a sinner. You are aware, you've been made aware by the Spirit of God when God made himself known to you that you are a poor, undone, unworthy, frail sinner. So that's important, very important. You may be somewhere in body, but it's the posture of the heart that makes the difference. In Psalms 57, verse 15, it says, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. I just like to read that. Thus saith the high and lofty one. Now it's talking about God, of course. Thus saith the high and lofty one, the one that inhabiteth eternity. I hope to be with the Lord in eternity one day. I'll be where he's at. Thus saith the Lord, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. He says, for I will dwell with him. He says, of a contrite heart and a broken spirit to revive the spirit of the broken ones and the heart of the contrite ones. He says, those who have a contrite, a broken heart and a contrite spirit and meet and worship me, I will dwell with them. They shall dwell with me and I will revive them. Uh, I, I like to think that we have at least 52 revival meetings a year here at this church. Every Sunday should be a revival. Is that your experience? Do, do you feel better when you leave than you did before you came? Do you feel lifted up? Do you feel strengthened? Do you feel comforted? Do you feel built up in the most holy faith? Is there a difference when you leave this place? It was when you got here. If not, either something's wrong with you, something's wrong with me, or something's wrong with somebody. Okay? There's just something wrong. Because the house of God is designed for you to assemble, to worship God in spirit and truth, honor, praise, and glorify Him, and in turn... He revives you if you have a contrite spirit and a broken heart. That's just describing somebody who is a sensible sinner. See, there's two kinds of sinners in the world, those who know it and those who don't know it. But they're all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the word all here uh, means all without exception. 
We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but are we aware of it like we should be? I remember hearing a man one time, he developed the attitude that if you uh, had any kind of an outlook other than just a dejected outlook, just a downing outlook all the time, uh, then you won't really feel like you ought to feel. And I don't believe that's the case. The word joy is used too many times in the Word of God. The word rejoice is used too many times in the Word of God. There is a balance there. And I do believe we need on a daily basis to recognize our depraved nature, to recognize our weakness, our frailty, to recognize that we're undone, unworthy of the very air that we breathe, much less the blessings God bestows upon us. But at the same time, we need to understand and rejoice that we're children of the King. We belong to God. We're His child. We're His children. He has redeemed us. He saved us by His grace. He saved us from our sins. He saved us from a burning hell to a home in God in glory. And if that don't put a smile on your face, I don't have anything else that will. After you hear that, and you don't have a smile, you don't have a beautiful countenance, then somehow you didn't hear what I said. And that does happen, by the way. <laughs> oh, me. Anyway, <laughs> this describes a people that are involved in true worship. Abraham in Genesis 22, when he was about to go up into a mountain to do what God had commanded him to do, God told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, to a mountain I will show thee, and you offer him there on the mountain. Here's what Abraham said to two men that he left behind. He says, tarry here while I and the lad go yonder and worship. Do you notice what he said? He said, I'm getting ready to go to that mountain, I'm taking my son Isaac, and the, my, my God told me to offer him up there on the top of that mountain, my only begotten son on top of that mountain, and I'm heading up there to do that. I don't know how it's all going to turn out, but I am confident me and my son are coming back, but we're going up there, and we're going up there to worship. In the 24th chapter of Genesis, Abraham sends his eldest servant back to the homeland to get a bride for his son Isaac. That servant prays. The first thing he does is bow down and pray for God to prosper his journey. When he gets there and sees the evidence that God has prospered his journey, the Bible says he bowed down and worshiped God. You will notice in the examples I'm going to give you, there's always some bowing down that takes place. Or he gave you the one in Psalms. I give you the one here of the servant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 24. He bowed down and worshiped. In the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua, just before Joshua leads Israel across Jordan's River to take the city of Jericho, you find where an, a per, uh, an angel visits uh, Joshua, and Joshua draws his sword in the beginning, not knowing who this person is. When he said, are you for us or are you against us? And the reply came, I'm captain of the Lord of hosts. And when Joshua heard that, the Bible says Joshua fell down on the ground and worshipped. That captain of the Lord of hosts was none other, I believe, than the Son of God himself. I read in the book of Job, when Job had got those reports, one right after another, one right after another. You know, the enemy came and taken the camels, the enemy came and taken the oxen and the sheep, and the houses of, uh, had been destroyed, and then finally about his own children being destroyed. The Bible says that Job rent his mantle. That means rent means to tear. R-E-N-T means to tear apart. He rent his mantle, he shaved his head, and he fell, bowed down and fell down on the ground and worshiped God. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It takes a person living close to the Lord to react that way. With all these bad reports, 
It takes somebody living close to the Lord to feel like at that time they must worship God. And he did it in humility. He bows down and worships God. See, today we, we're not, none of you are bowing down. I'm not bowing down in body, but I hope and pray we are bowing down in our heart. I hope indeed that our heart is contrite. I hope that our spirit, our spirit's contrite and our heart is broken. Because the promise is God will dwell with people like that. The promise is God will revive people like that. And I need reviving. I tell you, I need reviving. Uh, I need reviving oftentimes and frequently. And I look at, again, our meetings are 52 revival meetings plus our special meetings each, during the year. They need to be viewed as revival meetings. We find here where Jacob, in his dying hours, in his dying hours, has God on his mind. Worshiping God is the first thing that's first and foremost in the mind and life of Jacob at this particular time. You know what uh, uh, Abraham, when Abraham knew his time was short on this earth, you know what was his chief concern? His chief concern was getting a bride for his son Isaac. That was his chief concern. When Isaac thought he was going to die, and I want you to remember this, he thought he was going to die. Uh, his main concern was having Esau go out and kill a, some, uh, get him some venison and bring it back for one last meal. The Bible says, I've forgotten that exact number of years, but he lived a number of years after that. And maybe that's why that was on his mind when he thought he was going to die and he wasn't about to die. What's on Jacob's mind in his dying hours? I mentioned this in one of the Wednesday night uh, messages. It's very important you have a last will and testament. But it's also very important that you have a last witness and testimony. And here we find a last will and testament is being written by Jacob. He's planning his funeral. He's telling Joseph, you take me out of here, you bury me. When I die, you bury me back in the land of Canaan. But in doing all that, and what we're going to see in this chapter as we move along here, we have a man who's also concerned with his last witness and testimony. Now, I don't need to wait till I'm about to die to be concerned about my witness and testimony. I hope I'm concerned with my witness and my testimony right now. But you see, Jacob is concerned about that. He wants to cross all of his T's and dot all of his I's. He knows that he's a dying, but he's still got enough strength to worship God. He's going to have enough strength to worship God. Uh, rather to bless the sons of Joseph that we'll see in just a moment or so. What was the chief concern of the wise men when they had that light that guided them to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem? Their main concern, the Bible says, they came and they worshipped him. That's what was on their mind was to worship him. Uh, you look in the book of Revelation and you're going to find where the four and twenty elders are going to cast their feet, crowns at the feet of Jesus, fall down and worship him. And you'll find this in the book of Revelation. The word worship is used a number of times and describes two different categories of people. It describes one category of people that are worship, falling out and worshiping uh, the devil, the false beast, and the prophet. And you find the other category of people that's worshiping Almighty God over here. I know which camp I want to be in. I hope I, we know which camp that we are in here this morning. So here we find Abraham worshiping God when he's weak, when he's frail, when he knows he's dying, and yet he still turned his eyes, you might say, to God in reverential respect. And then in verse 3, J 
Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Notice how he describes God. This is the fifth time the word Almighty is used in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. The first time the word Almighty, which means all-sufficient, the all-sufficient one. The first time it's used in Genesis chapter 17 when God is speaking to Abraham and tells Abraham he's going to have a son in his old age. In fact, he'll be 100 years old when he has a son. His wife, Sarah, will be 90. I can understand why he appeared as the Almighty here, can't you? It's going to take almighty power to bring this about. It's going to take the all-sufficient one exercising omnipotent power to enable a woman whose womb is dead to conceive and a man whose body is dead to participate in having a conception bring forth a son here in this world. So he appears to him as almighty God, God Almighty. In the 28th chapter, you're going to find where Abraham's going to send Jacob back to the land of where they came from and he says to Jacob, and may the Lord God Almighty bless you and multiply you and make you fruitful. We find where the Lord in Genesis 35 appears to Jacob. He says, I am the Almighty God. That's how he addresses him. I'm the Almighty God. He says, and you're going to be fruitful, and I'm going to bless you, and you and your seed shall inherit this land. He's reiterating the promise he made to Isaac and to Abraham about them being the land of Canaan, and all the nations of this earth was going to be blessed through them. And when Jacob sends his sons back down to the land of Egypt to get corn to bring up, but he's going to have to send Benjamin along with them. Remember, he no longer has Joseph. He thinks Joseph is dead. When they came back, they left Simeon down there in prison. And now they can't go back unless they take Benjamin. You can see what a, what a condition Jacob's heart and mind is in. When he finally agrees to let them take Jake, uh, Benjamin and go back down there, you're going to find him said, May the Lord God Almighty prosper your journey and bring Simeon and Benjamin back to me. He had 12 sons. He reduced to 11 when he thinks Joseph is dead. Simeon is in prison in Egypt and that knocks it down to 10. He now has to send Benjamin, his youngest son, down there with him. Now he's got nine and he sees uh, those 10 going to Egypt. And he doesn't know for sure if he'll ever see Benjamin or Simeon again, perhaps even those, nine son, those 10 sons. But he says, may almighty God, that's the kind of God he believed in, the kind of God he trusted would be with them and prosper their journey, you see. And so we find here where he uses that expression. In the book of Job, Job refers to God a lot of different ways, but you know how he refers to, uh, Job, uh, Job refers to God the most as Almighty. 31 times in the book of Job, when Job's talking about God, he calls him the Almighty. 31 times. In the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the Almighty nine times. It might surprise you, the only other time in the New Testament where he's referred to as the Almighty is in 2 Corinthians 6.18. But in Revelation, that last book, he's referred to as the Almighty nine times. Let's take a look at one of them in Revelation 1.8. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says, I, I am he that is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Almighty in the past, Almighty in the present, Almighty in the future. Aren't you glad God doesn't change? Or... Are you as strong today as you were five years ago? Are you as strong today as you were 10 years ago? I'll just talk to the older ones here. I don't think so. You don't get stronger as you get older. You get weaker. God doesn't change. God is as omnipotent today as he was when he spoke this world into existence. 
The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Revelation 19, verse 6. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That means he has all power. He has all power in heaven and all power upon this earth. He's the all-sufficient one, the almighty. That's how Jacob here addresses Joseph when he's going to relate an experience he had. And this goes back to Genesis chapter 28. This experience can be used in so many different ways to illustrate so many great truths contained in the Bible. But this is what he's referring to. He may not remember every experience he's had on this earth, but he remembers his experiences with God. He refers back to the time in Genesis 28 when he was fleeing from Esau. And he's in the wilderness. And that night he takes some rocks and puts under his head for a pillow. And during the night, the Lord God Almighty appears to him in a dream and tells him, I am the God of thy father Isaac and thy father Abraham. He says, the land in which you're lying on right now, I'm going to give to you and to your seed, and I will be with you, I will lead you, I will keep you, I'll protect you, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Jacob wakes up from that dream. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he called that, the name of that place Bethel, which means the house of God. And he says, the Lord God appeared to me in, a place, in Canaan land in a place called Luz, Again, that's where he was at in Genesis chapter 28. And you find uh, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32, I believe it is, where this experience is referred to again. And over here we find where it says, God found Jacob in a desert land and in a waste howling wilderness. That's the condition he was in when God found him. That's your condition, my condition by nature, when God found you and God found me with a desert land and a waste howling wilderness. But look at the promise God gave him. He says, I'll be with you. I will keep you. I will guide you. I will not forsake you nor leave you. And Jacob took that to heart. He said, that's my first experience. After he tells him this, this is when I believe Jacob did indeed have an experience of grace. Those same pillar, rocks he used under his head for a pillar, he takes and erects for a pillar, and there he worshiped God. All right, now he takes a look at the two sons of Joseph here. He said to me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and make thee a multitude of people and give thee this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. He is telling Joseph what God told him. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born of thee in the land of Egypt before I came to thee in Egypt, are mine as Reuben and Sibion, they shall be mine. What's Jacob saying here? Jacob said, I'm going to adopt my two grandchildren. They're going to become mine, okay? And this is important here because if you've been following along, you will find where Joseph, who is the 11th of the 12 sons, is going to take the place of the firstborn. He's going to take the place of Reuben. In Genesis 46, God tells Jacob, when he says, you go down to the land of Egypt, he says, I'll go with you and I'll bring you back out of there. And he says, and Joseph shall close your eyes. Now you might read that not knowing what that means. He, Joseph, shall close thine eyes. That means when you die, Joseph will be the one to close your eyelids. That was usually reserved for the firstborn. Normally, Reuben would have done that. Reuben's not going to do that. Joseph is going to do that. When you read the life of Reuben, and you read uh, what Jacob says about Reuben in chapter 49, in the next chapter, you're going to find where Reuben done something very immoral. And because of that, he's removed from being the firstborn in terms of privileges and blessings because the firstborn, as a general rule, got a double blessing, double portion, double blessing. Joseph is going to take his place. 
Simeon and Levi, second and third sons of Jacob. Reuben number one, Simeon number two, Levi number three. Go back to Genesis chapter 34, they got a sister, her name is Dinah. And there's a man named Shechem, a Gentile, who has eyes for Dinah, but he doesn't treat her properly, doesn't treat her right. He uh, treats her in a very ungodly manner, ungodly way. But at the same time, his heart is with her. And he wants her to be his wife. And you're going to find where the sons of Jacob are not going to accept that. So they deceive Shechem and his father and those people there to making them think that they will. And the only way they said, we will do what you're asking is all of you must be circumcised. They agree to it. On the third day after being circumcised, we find where Simeon and Levi went through at all the camp with their sword and slew them all. Jacob was not happy what they'd done to his daughter Dinah, but he also knew this was not the way to take care of it. And this very much displeased Jacob. These two sons of Joseph are going to replace Simeon and Levi. Levi will get no inheritance in the land of Canaan. Now true, the, tribe of, uh, the priesthood will come from the tribe of Levi, but they will have no inheritance in Canaan's land. And what about Simeon? He's absorbed into the tribe of Judah. These two sons of Joseph are going to be highly blessed by Jacob. You'll see that in just a moment or two. And they're going to take the place of the second and third sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi. Joseph is going to take the place of Reuben as the firstborn. Verse 6, And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren and their inheritance. He says, anybody you have after this. Now, there's no record where Joseph ever had any more children. He may have, just not have a record of it. But he says, if they do, he says, now Ephraim and Manasseh will have a name established. They'll have an inheritance established, but any other children will just fall in line under them and receive what all the other uh, children of the other sons would receive, is what he's saying. As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come to Ephra, and I buried her there in the way of Ephra, the same as Bethlehem. Rachel was the mother of Joseph. Rachel's one Jacob loved all along in the very beginning. But we find he, re- he reaped what he sowed, and before he could have Rachel, he had to take Leah. Because the custom of that day is the younger did not, take the, they did not go forth in marriage before the older one did. He deceived his father, and now he was deceived by Uncle Laban. So Leah's going to bury him six children, and their handmaid's going to bury him four more. And finally the Lord opens up the womb of Rachel where she buries him two children, Joseph and Benjamin. So he makes reference here, not of Leah. He makes reference of Rachel. That's Joseph's mother. And why Jacob mentions it here, we're not specifically told, but I, I think he's just revealing his heart here unto his son Joseph. Your mother, my wife Rachel, that I served 14 years for her to be my wife. And the Lord finally blessed her to bring me forth two sons, you and Benjamin. She died on the way to Bethlehem. Just before I got to Bethlehem, she died and I buried her there. She was the love of his life. And she's the mother of Joseph. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Now the reason he's asked that, his eyes are very dim. And he can't see distinctly. 
And Joseph said to his father, they're my sons whom God had given me in this place. You, you know, uh, Joseph couldn't hardly say anything without mentioning God's name. Did you notice that? Isn't that wonderful? That he's always talking about God. God made me fruitful. God made me forget. There's two sons God gave me uh, here in this land. He gives God the glory for all these blessings. And he said, bring them, I pray to me, and I'll bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face. And lo, God has showed me also thy seed. <laughs> there was years, there was at least 20 years when Jacob thought Joseph was dead. He thought he'd seen the face of his son for the last time, 20 years prior to that. 20 years goes by. And he does have no thought whatsoever of ever seeing his son Joseph, that beloved son, the one he gave the coat of many colors to. He has no thought. He does not believe he'll ever see him again. He thinks some wild beasts have devoured him. And now, lo and behold, God has showed him Joseph's face. Oh, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? He says, and not only that, but your sons, <laughs> my grandsons, <laughs> Oh, it reminds me of Ephesians 3.20, I think of so often, when the apostle said, Now unto God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Do you think about that from time to time, brethren? How that God just blesses you so abundantly that your cup runs over? He opens up the windows of heaven where he pours out the blessings upon you. You can't receive the, the entirety of them. And yet we just seemingly so many times going about our business without looking at them and saying, thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. I had not thought to see thy face. And lo, God has showed me also thy seed. He, he did far more than that. He didn't know he had any seed. He didn't know he had two grandsons. By Joseph. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth out of respect for his father. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and put it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly. <laughs> Interesting word. The word wittingly means uh, with intelligence. He knew what he was doing. It means skillfully. He, he guided his hands wittingly, with skill, with, very skillfully. And with intelligence, he's doing what God has impressed him to do. He's doing what God has led him to do. But notice what he does here. Joseph has them all lined up where Jacob's right hand would be on Manasseh, his left hand on Ephraim because Manasseh's the oldest child. But we find Jacob doing this. He crosses his hands. He puts his right hand on the younger. This is the fifth time in the book of Genesis where God passes over the oldest to the youngest. The first is in Genesis chapter 4 with Abel, Abel and Cain. Cain's the oldest. He's born first. Abel comes along second. They both bring an offering unto God. And the Bible says Cain brought the works of his hands. He brought the fruit of the field. But we find where Abel brought the first thing of the flock and the fat thereof. Uh, what's the difference of these two offerings here? Well, the Bible says God had respect unto Abel, and then his offering, he had non-respect to Cain and his offering. 
The offering of Cain, again, reflected his own efforts, his own work, his own toil, and from an earth that God had cursed. God had cursed the land. And we find where Abel slays an animal, Abel slays a lamb, and he brings the offering, the fact thereof, unto God, and there he worships God. God went over Cain, the oldest one, to the young one, Abel. When God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, that we made mention of briefly before, you find where God is promising Abraham that he's going to bless him with a son in his old age, and through that son and his seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The seed of consideration is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what reaction of Abraham was in the beginning? He said, oh, that Ishmael might live. Ishmael was 13 years old. He's 13 years older than Isaac. He is actually Abraham's firstborn, but not by Sarah. God over, overgoes Ishmael to Isaac, the younger. Jacob and Esau are born. Read about their birth. Interesting. When you read how they were born, you find the first one that comes out of the womb, they're twins. The first one that comes out of the womb is Esau. He's the oldest. And as he's coming out of the womb, a hand comes right behind him and grabs his heel. <laughs> That's Jacob. The word Jacob means supplanter. It means trickster. <laughs> Even when he was being born, he was revealing his nature. Was he not? It's amazing to me that he had consciousness enough to reach out and grab the heel of Esau because he wanted to get ahead of Esau. Esau's the oldest. God goes over the oldest to the youngest. We find where God goes over the youngest in Joseph, uh, uh, oldest in Reuben, and Joseph takes his place. Then we find where Ephraim is the youngest, Manasseh is the oldest, Jacob does this. And by the way, what's, what do you see in that? You see a cross? You see a cross when he wittingly crossed his hands, put his right hand on the head of the younger, and his left hand on the head of the older? He's doing what God's already done four times prior to this. He's passing over the older one to the younger one. Remember the firstborn had double, double portion. That was a rule in Israel. The oldest son would have special privilege. He would have double portion above all the rest of the sons that would be born into that family. But God bypasses the older to the younger. Abel over Cain. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over Reuben, Ephraim over Manasseh. And when God placed Joseph over Reuben, he done something else. Reuben was a child of Leah, who was older than Rachel. Older than Rachel. When he puts Joseph in the place of Reuben, he takes Rachel, the younger, and he puts her over the older sister of Leah. When you're born of the Spirit of God, you know what God does? He takes a second birth over the first birth, doesn't he? By nature, we're natural. By nature, we're carnal. By nature, we're sinners. You want God to accept your first conception, first birth, or you want the second? <laughs> when God borns you of the Spirit of God, he adopts you into his family. He borns you into his family. And that's all based upon that cross, my friends, based upon the meritorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When Christ hung upon that cross and died for you and died for me, I'm telling you, the shed blood of Jesus Christ was applied to your heart and your soul when God spoke to you and born you of the Spirit of God. We see that illustrated time and time and time again. And he blessed Joseph. He didn't only bless his sons, he blessed Joseph. And said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day. Here's a man 147 years old. And he says, God has fed me every day I have lived. 147 times 365. Multiply it out. God has fed me. Uh, uh, well, Joseph fed him for seven years, didn't he? Joseph fed him for seven years of famine, but Abraham knows where the food came from. Food came from God. Isaiah 55, 10, as the, as the snow and the rain come down from heaven and water the earth, it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The reason we have bread to eat this day is because there was seed. The reason we have seed is because God gives the sunshine, God gives the rain, God gives the snow. It enables the seed to go into the soil, into the ground, and germinate and come out, my friends, produce the bread that you eat on a regular basis. God who fed me all the days of my life. Now, I got married 53 years ago. Well, when I was growing up, my mother was putting food on the table. <laughs> and for the last 53 years, my wife's been putting food on the table. <laughs> but I know if God had not blessed my mother and dad, if he had not blessed me and my wife, there'd be no food for them to prepare and put on the table. And by the way, Karen's been getting back into making homemade biscuits. <laughs> she used to make them all the time, and boy, she done a great job. And here of late, she has got this. She wanted to get back into it, and I didn't uh, discourage her. I said, "Go with it, get with it." And boy, I'm bragging on them every time she takes them out. So, oh, these ain't just like I want them. I said, "They're good to me. They taste great. And if you got higher standards, fine. Keep trying, keep trying. Go higher and higher. They're all right with me." God had fed me all the days of my life. If that's not your attitude or my attitude, something's wrong with us, brother. There needs to be a recognition that. You might go to Publix. You might go to Kroger. But I'm telling you, what for God, they'd have nothing on the shelves. Nothing. Fed me all the days of my life. The angel which redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. For 147 years, Jacob lived in a world of danger. He says, the angel, spelled with a capital A, the angel of the Lord has delivered me from all the evil. I don't have a different testimony. My testimony is the same as his. I tell you, there's a, an angel has watched after me. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times in my life. I've driven well over a million miles in my life. And uh, you know, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen a lot of dangers. And, I've, uh, and, and there's been a lot of dangers I hadn't seen. I just know there's an angel, the Lord Jesus Christ, spelled with that capital A, that has delivered me from all the evil thus far in my lifetime. And I'm going to close here in the last two verses, well, verse 21. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die. But God shall be with you, 
and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Behold, I die. That's all man can say. Did you know that? <laughs> That's the bottom line. Behold, I die, but God shall be with you. I believe I can say that in my dying hour. If my family's around and I have enough strength to say it, I can say, behold, I die, but God will be with you. And he's going to bring you, Joseph, you and your posterity, back to the land of your fathers, back to the land of Canaan, where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob dwelt, where you lived for the first 17 years of your life. Now, Joseph will not personally see that day. It'll be over 200 years before God performs that promise. But Jacob believed it. He got it from Isaac. Isaac believed it. He got it from Abraham. Abraham believed it. There was coming a day when they would be taken out of that land of Egypt and brought to the land of Canaan. They would have it as a nation of people. He said, God shall be with you and shall bring you back to the land of your fathers. That's the land I gave you. That's the land that belongs to you. That's the land where you shall dwell and God shall visit you and bring you back into the land of your fathers. And then he turned his attention to the other sons in chapter 49. That's where we will look into, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for your prayers, as, as always, and for your wonderful attention this morning. Uh, you've been a, a great delight to speak to.